Beware the Ides of March. Well, the Ides of March have come and gone, so if you are listening to this, then you're safe. But alas, was not so for Julius Caesar, dictator perpetuo of Rome. O mighty Caesar, doth thou lie so low? Are all thy conquests, glories, triumphs, spoils shrunk to this little measure? Fare thee well. Julius Caesar was perhaps the first Shakespearean play that captured my imagination. No, 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 that's not right. It was actually Henry V via the Kenneth Branagh film version, which today I find equal parts exhilarating, fantastic, and utterly nauseating. (laughs) The cast is littered with a who's who of great Shakespearean actors, so the acting and production are top-notch. What I often find nauseating is Branagh's choices to often make a scene drip with drama by either requiring his actors to whisper lines that should not be whispered or to punch lines or words in odd ways. Yet I understand that we have been performing Shakespeare for over 400 years and the magnificent Brana is simply trying to find new ways to present these plays. The mistake we often make when presenting Shakespeare is to stylize his plays, which rarely, if ever, brings new meaning or uncovers new layers of meaning within the text. It would be akin to me presenting to you Jesus's Beatitudes in the form of a rap or a maybe a heavy metal song. It might be engaging for a moment, as it was unexpected, but my thrashing guitars or sweet beats would only serve to distract from Jesus' words. Shakespeare can survive all of our presentations, but we will never find a better interpretation than an actor speaking the lines clearly without grandiose sets or obtuse line deliveries. I was uh, 12 years old when I watched Branagh's Henry V, and it truly did capture me. I didn't know the difference between a good production or a poor one, or a good line delivery or a poor one. Not that I could articulate anyway. I was no genius savant. I hardly knew what the actors were saying, but the performances were moving enough to put fire in the heart and mind of a complete ignoramus, which I was. It was not long after that I had the chance of seeing the 1970 film version of Julius Caesar with another all-star cast, including the legendary John Gielgud as the titular Caesar, Charlton Heston 
as his trusted Antony, Robert Vaughn, Diana Rigg, Richard Johnson, Richard Chamberlain, and, unfortunately, Jason Robards as the honorable and conscience-torn Brutus. I say unfortunately about Jason Robards because he seemed to think that the character Brutus was not a man, but a plank of wood. For 90% of the film, neither Robards' facial expression nor the expression of his voice changes from a concerned monotone. If I were to compare Robards to something in nature, I would say he was a fallen tree who could not yet decide how they felt about falling. Robards, however, proves my point that all an actor need do is speak their lines clearly to allow the audience member to be enriched by the depth of Shakespeare's words. Even Robard's incessant monotone is enough. Yes, it does stand out to an embarrassing degree as he shares so much screen time with the great Richard Johnson, a Shakespearean actor of the highest caliber, infusing his performance of Cassius with all of the spit and rage we could hope for in a plotting mutineer. Oh, and then Robards is unfortunate enough to have a scene with the dynamic, incredible Diana Rigg, who many forget was an eight-year veteran of the Royal Shakespeare Company before skyrocketing to fame in film and television. Rigg is generous. She does not compete with Robards, which would not have been a competition. She uses her vivaciousness to lift Robards' own mediocrity. To his credit, I will say that Robards seemed to have a firm handle on the text, its meaning, and how to deliver his lines in an intelligible way. I just can't, for the life of me, understand why anyone involved in the production thought that Robards was a good choice for such an important role. Brutus should be a passionately inward person, a character should never be defined by what they lack. It is infinitely more effective on stage to demonstrate what a character has. And yet, Robard's betrayal of Brutus is to make his singular characteristic his lack of charisma. On the other side of the spectrum from Jason Robards is Charlton Heston. Muhammad Ali said his favorite actor of all time was Heston, and one need look no further than Heston as Antony to see why. Until after the murder of Caesar, Antony's lines are but a trifle few. This must have been by design, for when Antony stands before the crowd with the bloodied body of Caesar, we are taken completely off guard by his mastery of rhetoric and manipulation. As an ignorant teen, I knew Charlton Heston from epics such as The Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur, and from uh, two of my favorite films of all time, The Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers. In his many roles as an actor, Heston could be righteous to an otherworldly level or as evil as a man ever was. 
What he displayed as Mark Antony, though, was charisma. Such charisma is what Antony uses to turn the crowd against Caesar's assassins, against that plank of fallen wood, Brutus. It is the same charisma that made Muhammad Ali believe that Heston was the greatest actor in the world, and Ali knew all about being the greatest. At this point, I'm realizing that I will be splitting up my commentary on Julius Caesar into multiple episodes. So, now that I've shared what initially drew me into Shakespeare and then this play about Julius Caesar, I think a brief overview of how I view this play is in order. I do not think that it would be a controversial stance to take that Julius Caesar is Shakespeare's first attempt at writing Macbeth. What stands out to me is, although less celebrated, perhaps for giving less emphasis on the supernatural and the psychological, is how successful a play Julius Caesar is. It is an absolute triumph. In my mind, it is perhaps Shakespeare's most underrated play, whereas the aforementioned Henry V might be his most overrated it has its moments, but even Brana knew that Henry V was not interesting enough on its own to make a movie out of, so he included scenes from Henry IV. Perhaps the most interesting way to consume any of the Henry plays is via Orson Welles' masterpiece, The Chimes at Midnight, which mashes up the Henry plays to emphasize the perspective of Shakespeare's greatest creation, Falstaff. It is Falstaff who brings joy and life to Henry IV, and his absence in Henry V makes for a rather dull affair. Still, as a teenager, I did enjoy memorizing and performing Henry V's St. Crispin's Day speech. Never before, nor since, has a speech been so effective to rally the troops. Then we remember that Henry V's campaign against France was nothing noble, but all about power and property. Henry died, but seven years later, from what is presumed to have been dysentery, he was only 35 years old, having wasted his life on military campaigns to prove that he was king. How many died in Henry's quest to prove he was king? in Julius Caesar, seeks not to be king, but to stop Caesar from becoming king. While others crave the power that Caesar holds, Brutus knows that power corrupts and fears what Caesar will become once king. This is another parallel to Macbeth, as both plays are consumed with the thought of what if. The biggest difference between the two plays is that Brutus gives no ear to the soothsayer who warns Caesar to beware the Ides of March. No character gives heed to any supernatural warnings within the play, whereas Macbeth is overcome by the supernatural. Both plays are fatalistic, however, in that the supernatural warnings come to pass whether or not they are listened to or obeyed. It could be said 
that Caesar could have avoided his tragedy had he listened to the supernatural, whereas Macbeth would have avoided his tragedy if he had ignored the supernatural. This is the greatness of Shakespeare, that he is a student of Ecclesiastes. What do I mean by that? Well, Ecclesiastes in the Bible dismantles messaging. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9. I appreciate Ecclesiastes coming after Psalms and Proverbs in the Christian Bible as if to tear apart all of the so-called wisdom of those books. And I gave my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceived that this is also vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth in knowledge increaseth in sorrow. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Shakespeare, like the preacher in Ecclesiastes, knows that life is too complex to have a singular message. Life is too varied to have a singular story. There is no single right to a single wrong, no single righteousness to a single evil, no single wisdom to a single fatuity. Then I said in my heart, As it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? And then I said in my heart, That is also vanity. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 15 Brutus is convinced that rational thought and mercy will win over the people and bring them to his side, but rational thought gives way to riot as mercy spits in Brutus's face. Everything that Brutus believes in is true and untrue. His life is noble, but a noble lie. Antony mocks him by calling Brutus a noble man as Antony whips the mob up into a mutinous fury. Yet, after defeating Brutus, standing over the body of he who he once mocked and turned the people against, Antony gives the following eulogy. This was the noblest Roman of them all. All the conspirators save only he did what they did in envy of great Caesar. He only, in general and honest thought and common good to all, made one of them. His life was gentle and the elements so mixed in him that nature might stand up and say to all the world, This was a man.
Brutus's nobility is the vanity of Ecclesiastes. Brutus murders one Caesar only for another to take his place. Brutus's fear of the abuse of power only leads to more abuses of power. More death, more suffering. And all because Brutus himself wondered, what if? He did not know with any certainty that Caesar would be a terrible king, but his fear drove him to madness and madness to murder all under the guise of rational nobility. So what is the message? What what would Shakespeare have us take from this play? I actually think it has nothing to do with nobility, honor, fear, the supernatural fate, or any other such thing. What I believe Shakespeare wants his audience to take from this play is the power of rhetoric. Our nobility and ideals are nothing when compared to the power of rhetoric. For next week's episode, I plan on going into this idea of rhetoric in some depth, with examples from the text. Until then, I'll leave you with this question and perhaps its implications. If God had presented a better argument, a more powerful rhetoric than the serpent, would Eve have ever partaken of the fruit of the tree of knowledge? Friends, Romans, countrymen, He who has ears to hear, let him hear.